Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the weakness of blunt force masculinity. First, let me begin with a story that's a bit apocryphal. I'm not sure how true it is. When I heard it, it was attributed to Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, and it goes something like this. As a prank, and Doyle was known to be a prankster, a letter was sent out to something like a dozen of the leading captains of industry and business in England with a simple note inscribed, Flee at once, all is revealed. And with few exceptions, if any, the men who received these letters immediately left the country for an extended vacation or sabbatical. There's no real need for us to explore whether the story is true. It serves my purposes for the concept to be out there. The idea being that in this case, the problem with what I call blunt force masculinity is how it is used, sometimes even unwittingly, to hide the fear of being found out. If you'd like to know the number one problem with masculinity, the number one challenge posed to masculinity, it is exactly that, the fear of being found out, to be discovered to not be the person that your coworkers think you are, or the husband that you want to be, and to have that called out in a public way, or even face-to-face between husband and wife. It's the fear of being found out. Now, when I first heard that story... It was used in a Christian setting to sort of provide another example of something Jesus taught during the Sermon on the Mount, and that's that none of us are 100% pure gold, all of us have a lot to answer for, and that anyone, if left face-to-face with the idea that something they had done was about to be revealed, would no doubt conjure something that they did not want revealed. In the case of masculinity, or what I might call macho BS, the fear of being found out has a lot to do with things just as simple as you know, not being the best at something manly. It can be, you know, being exposed to someone who's not good with cars or doesn't understand the basics of home repair. Or it could be hiding out from some, that soft internal side that Carl Jung has referred to as uh, something our society mistakes for being feminine, but is in truth just being fully human, or just the fear of failure. This is a serious matter. It's not something we should take for granted. It has a very dark side. I openly wonder how many of the killers that we've encountered in our society who get the name family annihilators, how many of those family annihilator types didn't commit their murders just because they didn't want to be found out? They made sure that their loved ones weren't around to see their public failure. They weren't around themselves to see the spotlight shining on their failures. So when masculinity or macho BS is taken to this blunt force extreme, and it comes down to where some men are forced with the decision of, do I destroy everything and everyone I care about? Or do I stand in the spotlight and take my lumps? A lot of times, the masculinity goes in a very dark direction. Now, I want to provide a quick content warning. At the time I'm making this recording, I can't say one way or the other whether this episode is going to carry an explicit tag. I'll know that in the editing process. What I do know for now is that whether I end up using words that would carry an explicit tag or not, 
The topic certainly will have some adult content. I'm going to be dealing not just with this topic from the perspective of things we see externally from the way uh, masculinity can you know, present a dark side, but also some of the things that are perhaps less obvious or more often concealed. Some of them will be of a sexual matter. So take that into account as we proceed here. Something is wrong with the state of masculinity. It isn't a new problem, but... Maybe the stakes have become higher now than they used to be. I would argue that one key indicator of this is homophobia. And the way I think I usually describe this to people is to think about for a moment your experience, especially if you're a man. Think about your experience of being in junior high school or even the early part of high school and bullying. What kind of thing is likely to be at the heart or the quickest way to start a fight? You know, if you wanted to, to get two guys angry enough at each other to get them to, to start a fight, what would the best, easiest, most convenient way to do that be? And if I'm not mistaken, because, you know, the world has changed a lot since I was in high school, but I don't think it's changed this much. If you read the headlines, it hasn't changed this much. If I'm not mistaken, the easiest way to start that sort of conflict, to get one person to pick on another person or to, to get two people to, you know, you know, draw fists against each other, is to raise questions of sexual orientation. Homosexuality being used on the playground, for want of a better word, as a reason to bash somebody else, as a reason to call out somebody's masculinity, and that often leads to physical violence. Because one of the biggest fears that you'll find in this uh, sort of realm of masculinity where things don't go the way they should is fear of being, in some way, sexually unfit. Now, I'm not describing homosexual behavior from my perspective as being sexually unfit. But what I am saying is that for a heterosexual man who's insecure about his sexuality, calling into question whether his sexual preference is heterosexual or not is a pretty good way to exploit that. And it often leads to acts of bullying. Now, I'm not here really to pick on the fraternity system. I'm not wanting to take a shot. And I'm also not wanting to tell stories about which I don't know the ending and uh, which are true but where my knowledge is 100% secondhand and hearsay. But I do want to give an example of a story that kind of came out of the fraternity system when I was in college. A friend of mine told me about something that happened in her hometown where somebody who had gone to the university that we went to and at the time was a freshman in college, pledging to a fraternity. So trying to impress another group of late teen and early 20-year-old men that he belonged in their clique was getting a lot of stick for the fact that he didn't have a lot of sexual experience. Perhaps he was a virgin. Perhaps he hadn't, um, uh, he hadn't scored with the ladies yet in college or whatnot. And during one of his hometown visits, because he was only a half an hour, 40 minutes away from home when he was at the university, during one weekend back where he's going to the high school football game, hanging out with some old friends, some of whom were his age, also returning to the high school environment on a break from college during the weekend, but also some who were a little bit younger. And in this case, he actually got together with, I don't know whether it was formally a date or not, or whether it was just an agreement to meet after the game, but he got together for drinks with a girl who was still in high school. So you essentially have a freshman in college, senior in high school, that kind of situation. And as would have happened, this being, you know, again, probably the mid-1980s, give or take, drinking was involved. It's possible that drugs were involved. 
And the guy was, in his mind, I'm certain, being very chivalrous, making sure that he took care of the young woman who had not done too well with whatever uh, she'd had to drink or whatever they were doing and had lost consciousness along the way. And he did get her all the way home and deliver her safely into her home and where he dropped her off and um, kind of put her into the care of her sister. Her older sister, who was also going to the same university that I was, was then charged, I guess, with the task of making sure that her um, inebriated and semi-conscious at best younger sister was ready for bed. And in the course of getting her, you know, out of her clothes and, and comfortably into her own bed, she realized that her younger sister's underwear was on backwards. And this was not the kind of mistake or not the kind of thing that she ever would have expected from her younger sister, that clearly somebody had removed her younger sister's clothes during this party and put them back on and put them back on hastily and clumsily enough, which all revealed the fact that she had essentially been date raped. Now, I'm going to refer to this going forward as sexual aggression or sexual assault because I don't have enough information myself. It was not my place or my business to explore this or try to nail it down in any way. But essentially, sexual intercourse had taken place with a woman who was not in a position to consent due to her mental state, due to the alcohol and or drugs that she had been given. And when my friend con confronted this young man about it, his attitude was that this was not a problem, that first it was none of her business because it was between her sister and him, and second, that her sister had more or less consented. And it's when you get into this terminology like more or less, when you get into these caging words that you realize that a sexual assault has most likely taken place because consent isn't something, um, certainly not now and never, but even then consent is not something that you would have wanted to have been assumed. But in his case, they had a relationship. He probably would have referred to as a friend, which in this case is a concept that I find offensive. But from his perspective, due to the history that they had together, maybe they dated in high school, and the fact that they were together at this party, it gave him all the consent that he needed. And her comfort with him at being willing to be unconscious in his presence gave him permission to do whatever it is that he would like. So if you wondered what I meant by blunt force masculinity, well, this is probably an example of that. Him exerting his will over someone else at a time when she was completely vulnerable and unconscious and not thinking twice about it. What in the world does a story like this have to do with homophobia? Well, I'm hoping that a lot of people who are listening to this tale have already gotten well in front of me and figured this thing out. That being accused of being you know, gay by people who didn't want him joining the fraternity, uh, members who thought they would uh, harass him or razz him or encourage him to drop out, essentially calling him you know, names to infer that his lack of sexual experience meant that he was unwilling to get that sexual experience. And as a response to that, when the first opportunity came for him to, quote unquote, sleep with a woman, um, he did. But the problem is only one of them was asleep at the time. Had both of them been awake, this might be a different conversation. I think there would still be some problems with it in my mind. But had both of them been awake, it would be a different conversation. And my argument would be this, from his perspective. First off, you're engaging in an intimate sexual act where you're the only one in the, in the process who's actually being intimate, because the other one's being unconscious. And you're doing so for no other reason than to prove that you're a man, to establish your manliness, doesn't really work. Now, I never met this person. I, I couldn't have picked him out of a lineup, didn't, don't know his name. I only heard from the sister about something that happened to her other sister, looking for, I guess, some advice or perhaps even a sympathetic ear. But one of the things I took away from it 
was how this was not all that different from this pledge to the fraternity being alone. He didn't connect the dots between his behavior with this senior in high school and masturbation. From his perspective, he had sex with somebody, but he might as well have been by himself because as far as her contribution to the act goes, she was, you know, a body. She might as well have been, you know, a sex toy or one of those one of those types of dolls that you you see sold in in adult bookstores, um, something that is, you know, less about coupling and more about an autoerotic act. Now, I personally don't have a lot of firsthand experience pun intended, with sex toys of this nature. But I am familiar enough, partly because of what I consider to be a really funny story. In fact, one of my favorite moments in the history of radio was a broadcast or two, actually, by the Don and Mike show. Now, this was sort of in the genre of shock jock radio in the, yeah, again, still the same period, maybe the late 1980s, early 1990s, broadcasting from Washington, D.C., which is the nation's capital. And, uh, the radio station that those guys were coming from was on the Virginia side of suburban D.C. And as a as a contest, for want of a better word, more as a prank, what they had done is they had gone to an adult bookstore and they'd picked up one of these dolls, one of these inflatable sex dolls. I would describe her as having a mouth that looked like she was in a, per, a state of perpetual shock and surprise. So to kind of give you the, the mental image, wearing some sort of lingerie and, uh, you know, having body orifices exposed. And so they took this doll, filled it up with helium and filling a doll of this sort up with helium, apparently, according to the radio broadcast was not sufficient to get it airborne. So they had to get not just a few balloons, but a lot of very large balloons, fill those up with helium too, because their goal was to float this doll over the Washington beltway. So they, they filled it up on the inner thigh of the doll. They wrote a hotline number to the radio station. So this is not the number you would call to request a song. It's not the number that you would call to try to be the ninth caller and win a contest. This was the number that gets you straight to the DJ, straight into the DJ booth. Because whoever found the doll, once it you know, deflated enough to be caught or to land, um, was going to win 100 bucks or something like that. They'd written the hotline phone number for the Don and Mike show on the inside of the doll's legs and floated her over town. Well, I think in their mind, she was probably going to hang out right on top of the the major highway that looped Washington, D.C. And then from there, uh, perhaps drift over into some other part of suburban Virginia, where a lot of the very local callers could track her down and win the money. But instead, what happened is that she drifted over the Capitol itself, and you ended up with a lot of hilarious radio coverage of not only this radio station's traffic reporters, but other accounts from other traffic reporters reporting about this doll floating over the nation's capital. Now, this is clearly pre-9-11, before 2001, because I don't know what would happen to a radio station who pulled a stunt like this in the post-9-11 era. Uh, the repercussions would probably be pretty serious and pretty stern. But in this case, it did nothing more than create a, a you know a traffic hazard, I would suppose, with a lot of people looking up at this doll um, face down flying over town. The fact is, by putting enough helium in her to get her afloat, she never came down. And during the entire radio broadcast, well, I think they might have thought that during that same day's show, they would get this phone call and give away the hundred bucks. It didn't happen. In fact, it was days, maybe even a couple of weeks later, 
when they got a phone call from somebody hundreds of miles away in the very southern part of the state, very far away from the nation's capital, a farmer near the border of North Carolina and Virginia who had found the doll on his property and knew nothing whatsoever about the Don and Mike show or about the contest that they, they were running. So instead, on a show just random days later, they get a phone call from a farmer who tells the uh, hosts of the show that um, he called them up because he found their girlfriend out in his wheat field and wanted to know what he should do with her. Funny story, right? Again, one of my favorite moments in all of comedy talk radio. But it does tell a serious story because this farmer who finds this doll in the field doesn't have any idea he's going to win any money. Decent guy wants to do the right thing, sees a phone number, knows it's not his property. But how does he describe what he has found on the phone, especially when he realizes uh, that he's talking to people who are running a radio show and he's actually on the air? And he referred to the doll as your girlfriend. I've found your girlfriend and I want to know what you want me to do with her. And in that sense, I'd make the correlation between that doll being the girlfriend of the of the radio DJs, being roughly equivalent to this high school senior, drunk and inebriated, being treated more like a doll than as a girlfriend, and inspired by something uh, as simple as saying, I'm sick and tired of being bullied, I'm sick and tired of being accused of being gay when I'm not, and perhaps in the mind of that individual having a fear of his own sexual identity, or at the very least, a fear of being treated as if he's something um, that he he himself views from his own homophobia. He himself views as being something bad or negative or wrong or hopeless in some manner and doing anything, including date rape, to avoid that accusation sticking. Hello, you wonderful lot. I'm Elton McManus, and I'm here to promote an apotheosis of a bombast. But instead of me waffling on about it, I decided to put a couple of clips together just to show you what it's all about. Enjoy. All I remember is uh, Penelope Pitstop did my brain in. It was like a dart, little dart kind of rocket car, it looked yeah. like. We actually had Stephen Hawking on the show. Tater chip looks like Jesus, or... Were you a BBC One or an ITV man? Got no shirt on. Me and a friend got uh, drunk one night, and we started writing down inappropriate Mr. Men names. <laughs> it's Mr. Man and Little Miss, those ones you've Yeah. About? Little Miss Whore. Bring me Penelope Pitstop. So there you have it, guys. If you do like it, join myself and Scott Copperman at bombastpodcast.podbean.com or find us somewhere in iTunes. Thanks. Unless we get too satisfied with ourselves and engaged in a convenient thought that, well, we're superior to the frat boy mentality. And um, maybe those of us who are Christian don't feel that we have the same, wouldn't, that we wouldn't have the same response to homophobic taunting. It's an interesting question because I've met people who might consider that some Christians might be more likely to be the homophobic taunters than the victims of homophobic taunting. But I think when you look around the church, one of the things you're going to find is that there are a lot of the lot of men in church who are there either of their own free will or there because they're accompanying a wife or a parent or something of that nature are also there engaging in the same type of posing. There's a fear there that represents itself in the manner of participation. There's something about not wanting to be found out. Something about this notion that certain activities are soft, certain activities are feminine, certain activities are submissive, and therefore those activities are wrong. And it is in this sort of knee-jerk reactionary masculinity that you see things like men 
who don't really worship fully. They're not there to worship, even when they're inside the church, because of their machismo concerns. And you can tell, because they may just stand while everyone else is singing, because it wouldn't be macho to sing. And if someone else is raising you know, a prayer of supplication, you know, something that they need, uh, something that they're afraid of, something that they, they want help with, that there may be other men in the congregation who judge that individual because, the, well, you know, that's weak. I'm the man. I ought to be able to take care of myself. There's absolutely no reason why I should be calling on anyone to help me with anything. And it is in those ways that true and genuine worship doesn't take place because the weakness of blunt force masculinity is that I'm not going to worship anyone except the image I have of who I should be, even though I know that that image is in many ways fundamentally false. And if you connect the dots here, you can see how that might lead you to a place where someone could take their fear of that particular point of view being exposed as wrong were exposed as inaccurate, and might even be willing to kill to protect and defend it, certainly might be willing to, I don't know, sexually assault somebody to protect and defend it. There may be some people who listen to the show that I released a week ago from when this is going to be released about sacred friendship and said, what in the world is this guy talking about? Men and women are inherently interested in each other as human beings because of what parts of my body fit into what parts of her body. And it is just that simple. It is all about T and A. And I would say that that response is either ignorant, only understanding a certain portion of human experience, or it is actually this exact kind of macho BS where rather than acknowledge that there might be something more going on emotionally between two human beings than that baseline animalistic sexual level, it'd be much, pre much more preferable to attack somebody else who has a different worldview than mine. You see this not only outside of the church in what we might call the general public, but we also see it inside the church. And the argument that I would like to make as I sort of veer this discussion a little bit more toward Christian men and introduce our different drummer, is this. There is no stronger masculinity you will ever express than the things that you do for and with God. That includes singing. That includes worshiping. That includes serving others. That includes crying. It certainly includes praying for people and asking people in turn to pray for you. How does this faithfulness differ from the recklessness or the wildness of what we might call the macho man? Well, you know what? The macho man who is afraid to sing, who is afraid to pray, who is afraid to cry in public, who is afraid to lend a shoulder to somebody else who's crying, who's uncomfortable with those kinds of situations, is much less macho than the person who stands up and does what the Holy Spirit is calling him to do. These types of men I've heard described by certain evangelists as being wild at heart. It's not that there's a difference between being meek and wild, and the wild man is not religious, and the meek man is. No, the difference is true masculinity. Masculinity in the service of God is perhaps wilder and more dangerous than any sort of reckless behavior you'll see, you know, which acts as nothing more than a cover or a front for the weakness and the fear of being exposed.
John Eldridge is an author, counselor, and lecturer. He is the leader of something called Ransomed Heart Ministries, and he is a family counselor who had at one time worked for Focus on the Family. I personally am glad that he left that organization and set up his own Ransomed Heart Ministries, which is devoted to furthering the message of what he calls the sacred romance. The sacred romance is uh, kind of a header that I would put for three books that he released early on in his career. One of them, simply called The Sacred Romance, Drawing Closer to the Heart of God, co-written with Brent Curtis. After Brent Curtis's death, he released two more books, The Journey of Desire, Searching for the Life We've Only Dreamed Of, and Wild at Heart. The first one of the three that I encountered was actually the last of the three. A friend of mine gave me a copy of what I thought was the book on CD for Wild at Heart. Actually, what it was, was a audio disc release of a Ransomed Heart retreat coming out at the time of Wild at Heart and covering a lot of the same materials. He knew that I'd be interested in it because I do love and enjoy film. And one of the things that John Eldridge uses a lot in his seminars are films that speak to us. I have mentioned John Eldridge before. You may remember references to his book, Epic, from the episode called Permanent Things That I Believe. And in there, the different drummer of that particular show was Larry Crabb, and Larry Crabb and John Eldridge have worked together in Christian counseling before. Eldridge shares with me a sense, perhaps even an aggravation, at the nature of masculinity in the church today, that so often you find men missing from church and worship and ministry, most importantly, acts of ministry. But when you do find men there, what you find there is men who feel like the only way to appropriately be part of Christian ministry is to be beaten down or submissive or benign, for want of a better word. And what John Eldridge has sought to do through his Ransomed Heart Ministries, but also through his books, is to encourage men to put the danger back into what it means to be sent out two by two by Jesus himself, carrying with you not just your bag and your shoes, but also as needed, a sword. People might remember the passage from Luke's gospel where Jesus tells uh, his followers to go out without a sword. They forget that at the end of the gospel, he specifically tells them to go out with it. Now, John Eldridge has been a source of controversy for some. There have been many who have rejected his interpretation of Scripture because they feel that he's bringing things that are non-biblical into it. But a lot of the complaints that he's receiving are complaints that come from one of two sides. First, a sense that masculinity is wrong, masculinity is bad, masculinity is inappropriate, has no place inside the Christian church. Um, hopefully no one has picked up that perception from me along the way. This entire episode is meant to call out some of the flaws in masculinity, but that doesn't mean that there's not a proper place. The other one is a very naive notion that Christianity should be kept very simple, very pure. Uh, people who perhaps do not believe that there's anything advanced or um, there's no master's degree course, for want of a better word, in it. And therefore, people have been held back and stunted in their growth because the churches in some ways kept them at square one. When I find that I like something, or at least that I'm intrigued enough to explore it further, one of the things that I do is I tend to go and seek out reviews. Now, that can be looking at IMDb pages for movies. It could be going to allmusic.com and reading you know, reviews from people who write professional music reviews. Or in this case, I went to Amazon.com and I said, you know, I've kind of enjoyed this Wild at Heart 
stuff. I thought it was a pretty good uh, audio disc recording, and I wanted the book, and I read the reviews. And I was kind of surprised by the polarizing response of those reviews. And I want to kind of deal with one particular example to give you a sense of how controversial Eldridge's approach is to masculinity in the church, interpretation of scripture, and whether the church is really equipped to deal with the fact that to win the hearts of men, you've got to approach things from a completely different perspective. And in this, he shares a story about his own son and his own son being bullied at a very young age, uh, kindergarten, first grade, somewhere in the early part of elementary school where the consequences are perhaps less grave than if you wait until junior high school to deal uh, with an act of violence being committed. And his son was very sheepishly at the table saying, you know what, I don't know what to do. This guy's you know, he's pushing me. He's pushing me down in the playground. I think maybe they, the parents noticed scratched up knees or something, which led to the conversation. And what uh, John told his son was, the next time this boy pushes you, what I want you to do is that I want you to make a fist with, with your, your right hand um, as hard as you can. And I want you to punch him in the face as hard as you can. Send a message to the bully that the buck stops here. And I want to pick up with some of the comments that I heard back to the Wild at Heart book and that account inside the Wild at Heart book regarding the first grader and the bully. John Eldridge says, you know what? You cannot turn a cheek you do not have. What was put in Eldridge's face was the idea that people said, well, that's crazy. You can't be telling you know, a kid to beat up a bully because that's not the Christian way. The Christian way is to turn the other cheek. And what Eldridge said was, hang on a second. When Jesus Christ is saying that we should turn the other cheek, he is speaking as the Lord of the universe, who is perfectly capable of annihilating any of his enemies. But you cannot turn a cheek you do not have. You must first establish that you are capable of standing up to those who would oppress you. And then it is the Christian thing to do, to elect not to do it. I decided that this was similar to my notion that the country cannot freely elect the same person to be president for his entire lifetime. Because at some point along the way, whether you mean to or not, you've established an emperor. You can't freely elect the same person forever, in other words, at least not in our system of government. Then I read some of these online book reviews, and I was surprised at the negative comments. The overwhelming majority were positive, and you know, you know how it is with Amazon.com. Um, you're more likely to write a positive review than a negative review. People who gush are more likely to gush loudly than quietly. Um, but the negative ones alarmed me because they accused John Eldridge of being unchristian by suggesting that his very young son stand up to a bully and defend himself. Now, some people just didn't read his book very clearly and didn't pay attention to what he had to say, but a great many were pretty much aghast that the Sermon on the Mount was being violated in this way, because, you know, let there be no question. Sermon on the Mount goes into example after example about the importance of turning the other cheek. And then I remembered something. I recall being in the second or third grade, and my parents were having that same argument between themselves about what I should do with a bully. My dad determined that defending yourself well was the difference between an acceptable and an unacceptable response using fists. Now, in that particular moment in time, it turned out I didn't need to take any action. But my dad did a good job of drawing what I consider to be a clear line. Here's what dad's line was. Do as little as you have to do, but do it. Block punches, punch back, run even, if that's the right thing to do. But do not settle old scores. Do not retaliate. Do not respond disproportionately. Fight to end fighting. 
I took that idea back to Matthew chapter 5. And what I noticed was that in my modern English version, it uses the word revenge. When it says, do not follow the standard of the Torah, do not do an eye for an eye, it says, do not take revenge. How telling. When I was growing up, no one would have thought twice if you socked someone who didn't leave your little brother or sister alone when they were clearly crying uncle, so to speak. Think about the scene in A Christmas Story where uh, Scott Farkas, the bully, is taking his, uh, his power play well beyond what's acceptable, that no one would have thought twice if somebody had gone up and punched him in the face hard enough to uh, stop his you know, confrontational behavior. But on the other hand, I cannot imagine somebody coming back, at least back then, coming back hours later and extracting some sort of violent revenge. We forgave more, or at least it seems like we did more freely than we do today. Our lawsuit-crazy society and our urban gang landscape, and even the way both work and government function, it's all about getting even. I'm going to filibuster your judicial appointees because you were slow to approve mine eight years ago, and so on and so on. A lot of things you hear from the church, all about people in the church doing things to get even with somebody who did something to me first. Back then, we'd get even, meaning we'd square things. We would settle them. And often enough, that included some forgiving, or at least knowing that at some future day, we'd need that same forgiveness ourselves. We don't live in a better world because Christians have determined that a first grader should never punch a bully to stop abusiveness. In fact, we live in a worse world. Did Jesus mean that we had to turn the other cheek to what happened on 9-11-2001? Let me say that again. If you're a Christian who's struggling with these concepts of masculinity, and you're not on board with what John Eldridge has to say and wild at heart, does Jesus mean in the Sermon on the Mount that we have to turn the other cheek to what happened on 9-11? Or is it okay for us to destroy a bully's ability to spread terror and destruction? Is it okay to do it with bombs? Is it okay to do it with cluster bombs? Is it okay to do it if we don't care about civilian casualties? These questions are not easy. There's a line somewhere. And the critics of John Eldridge that I've read didn't go deeply enough into it to come up with the right kind of balance is. Masculinity is important. It has a role to play. One of the things I like about uh, Eldridge's approach is by bringing men together in in retreats, and I've never gone on a retreat, frankly not interested in going on one of his retreats, because he's interested in activities that don't really appeal to me all that much. I'm unlikely to be uh, taken by the concept of fly fishing or rock climbing. But then again, if you were based in the Rocky Mountains, fly fishing and rock climbing would be two really cool activities to engage in. But he brings men together, both in the combination of, of exploring these fun, outdoor, recreational kind of masculine activities, but connects the dots between that and being open enough to God that as a Christian man, you don't think twice about singing in church. You don't miss the point about how important it is for us to serve and pray for others and shed a tear when necessary. The other thing that I find interesting about John Eldridge's ministry is he uh, starts off with an assumption that the soul has a gender. Now, this is, of course, going to be a completely lost concept on anyone who doesn't really connect with the idea of humans having a soul to begin with. But if you grant that humans have a soul, John Eldridge would be quick to say that the soul itself has a gender. And it's interesting to me in how his perspective on it differs with ideas that I've expressed even just one week ago. 
Because from my perspective, I think Jung is on to something. Carl Jung, the psychologist, when he suggests that the soul of every man has a compensating factor for the part of his life that he has suppressed or that is minimized due to his the nature of his masculinity. And that uh, Jung might say that every man has, in one way or another, loosely speaking, a feminine soul. Every little doubt that John Eldridge would disagree with that. But it is an interesting concept. He also refers in somewhat stereotypical ways to the notion that, um, at heart, uh, every man wants to be a hero, wants to step in and save the day. And at heart, every woman wants to be admired and recognized for her beauty. And that if you look in the stereotypes of our fiction and our literature and our films, you do see a pattern there that is essentially unmistakable. I'm not certain that it works, either from Carl Jung's perspective or from John Eldridge's perspective. When you begin exploring the much more complex areas of sexual preference um, from Jung, um, what is the opposite sex for somebody who's homosexual? Is the opposite sex the person that you otherwise would be sexually attracted to, meaning your same gender? Or is the opposite sex still female? Because it's a gender thing, not a sexuality thing. I don't have an answer for that question. I just thought I'd throw it out there. And John Eldridge doesn't get anywhere near the idea of addressing how sexual preference fits into all these complex concepts. I don't fault him for it because he's actually at the door of the church trying to deal with the question of how do we get men to come into the church and still behave like men when they're in the church. He hasn't gotten around to the more complex questions of what does it mean to be a man. Frankly, I'm content for now with the idea that a Christian counselor is out there like John Eldridge expressing ideas like, you know what, you cannot turn a cheek you do not have, that it is okay to be strong. It is okay to utilize a measured amount of power to make sure that a bully no longer has the ability to terrorize others. The question that I don't necessarily have answered in my mind, my sense that what's gone wrong with masculinity has an awful lot to do with homophobia is whether or not some of the controversies we've had here in just the past few months about whether or not you know Christian men and Christian leaders are willing to stand up to people who engage in homophobic bullying would end up finding themselves siding with the homophobes or siding with their victims. It's an interesting question that I'll leave for now because I don't know the answer. It's enough to say that at least as a different drummer, I find the things that John Eldridge has written well worth exploring. I think any one of these three books that he wrote at the beginning of, of his counseling career are good places to begin, and Wild at Heart certainly worked for me. I do want to finish today with a quote from John Eldridge, Wild at Heart, from the hardback edition, pages 82 and 83, dealing with the question of what do we do when masculinity goes wrong? You see, Eldridge and I are not on, on different pages here. Both of us are quite willing to grant that something has gone wrong in our masculinity. He cites Columbine, Colorado as an example of it, and I wouldn't disagree that the uh, the bloody shootings that occurred in that high school, again, a reaction, allegedly a reaction to homophobia, an example of, of our masculinity gone incredibly wrong. Instead of young men uh, engaging in aggressive acts to defend people from violent death, we're in dishing out violent death and, and killing young women among their victims. Just didn't make any sense to Eldridge. Here's what he says about it. A man is a dangerous thing. Women don't start wars. 
Violent crimes aren't, for the most part, committed by women. Our prisons aren't filled with women. Obviously, something has gone wrong in the masculine soul, and the way we've decided to handle it is to take that dangerous nature away entirely. The strength so essential to men is also what makes them heroes. So the strength may be dangerous, but the strength is also a key part of heroism, which remember from Eldridge's worldview, heroism is an important part of sort of the masculine ethos. If a neighborhood is safe, it's because of the strength of men. Slavery was stopped by the strength of men at a terrible price to them and their families. The Nazis were stopped by men. Apartheid wasn't defeated largely by women. Who gave up their seats on lifeboats leaving the Titanic so the women and children would be saved? And have we forgotten that it was a man who let himself be nailed to Calvary's cross? This isn't to say that women can't be heroic. I know many heroic women. It's simply to remind us that God made men the way they are because we desperately need them to be the way they are. Yes, a man is a dangerous thing. So is a scalpel. It can wound or it can save your life. You don't make it safe by making it dull. You put it in the hands of someone who knows what he's doing. John Eldridge from Wild at Heart. Now, part of the reason I like this passage so much is that John Eldridge doesn't pull any punches. He refers to the majority of men that you find in churches today as being in churches and being dull at the same time. And his answer, his solution is, you don't make something that's potentially dangerous safe by making it dull. You sharpen it to the full degree that you possibly can, and you put it in the hands of someone who knows what he's doing. To be honest, as a Christian, I would describe that someone as Jesus Christ. Here's my point of view. I ask these questions. Do we place ourselves above all powers? Do we place ourselves in our own hands, so to speak? Well, that would be a self-deception, as useless as a scalpel sitting on a table doing nothing. Do we place ourselves in the hands of the world, serving the whims of others? Well, sometimes we will do good, but that can at best be described as taking a chance on whether we'd heal or harm. No. So the concept that Eldridge introduced here, so is a scalpel. I've got a third option. Do we place ourselves, our very masculinity, in God's hands, like a scalpel at the service of a master surgeon? In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God says, I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I'll remove the stone heart from your body and replace it with a heart that's God-willed, not self-willed. As disciples, the Lord uses the strengths he has blessed us with, even in dangerous ways, to transplant hearts. He is asking for his scalpel. He is counting on us. He wants us to understand that there is no greater masculinity than the acts that we perform in his service. That's my opinion. If you've got a different point of view, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. And comments are enabled at the Podbean site, HTTP colon slash slash inappropriate conversations dot Podbean dot com. Thanks for listening.
Music by Kevin McLeod.